Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Welcome everyone to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk. On many of our podcasts, we explore the unique challenges of providing medical care in complex environments, and tonight is no exception. Providing life-saving pre-hospital care in a war zone is always a challenge. Doing this in the back of a Chinook helicopter with seriously injured service personnel is one of the most complex places we can operate. The work of the medical emergency response teams in Afghanistan is an exemplary case as to how yet again military medicine in conflict has pushed the boundaries of trauma care in a positive direction. To talk us through how MERT teams operate, we are privileged tonight to talk with Andy Thomas. So um, good afternoon, Andy. It's really good to see you. How, how are you today? I'm very good, Colin, and uh, good afternoon to you. And uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for giving us the time this afternoon. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, just just uh, having a discussion with you over the next sort of 40, 50 minutes, just learning a little bit more about the, your experiences with with the MERT teams. It's going to be fascinating. Um, just to um, just to open up the, the conversation, could you just give us um a little bit about your own background, uh, where, where you come from, and then maybe a expand a little bit more on, on where you were involved with, with the MERT teams. Uh, yeah, I mean, I won't <laughs> go back to childhood, so don't worry. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, I'm, I'm from uh, the northeast, Sunland originally. I joined the REF in uh, around about October 98 as an REF medic. Um, developed some time through the years as, as, a, as a medic and um, eventually 9-11 uh, happened. Uh, that changed the military landscape. I remember it very clearly at the time things started moving in a more operational environment thereafter. Um, uh, did uh, deployments to Iraq on what the pre-MERT stuff, which was called IRT on Puma and Chinook helicopters there. Uh, went to the Falklands and did some other bits and bobs and then eventually qualified as a paramedic. Um, so I was seconded to the NHS for 18 months uh, with a great Western Ambulance Service at the time. Uh, the RAF had started training paramedics, identifying the helicopters as needed at a slightly higher skill level. Um, uh, qualified uh, from that uh, around uh, the end of 2008 um, and started deploying in a role as a paramedic in, in Afghanistan in 2009. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the background of, of, of what led me to that kind of area, really. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm no longer in the military. I left uh, sort of six, seven years ago um, and uh, I've had to get a real job since then. <laughs> yeah, it so, so, sounds uh, um, an absolutely fascinating background you've got. And just just so our listener knows that the MERT teams, were they predominantly working working in Afghanistan? Would, would, that, would that be the theatre of operation? 
So traditionally, yeah, um, prior to Afghanistan, it was uh, the medical team was something called the immediate response team. Um, and it would be a smaller medical team, often a, uh, a military medic uh, from the RAF and a, and a nurse um, that would work on on a, on a helicopter just to do what was called Kazivak at the time. Um, and they would be used to try and bring patients from point of injury back to field hospitals, etc. I think when um, they, they first deployed into the Afghanistan sphere, the famous politician words were, we'll sort this out without a single shot being fired. I think I recall the current defence secretary saying um, and obviously activity was probably busier than everyone expected. Um, I think at the time, nothing to do with me. Um, some cleverer people um, looked at this and thought, oh, we need to really up the game here on what we're doing in casualty evacuation. Um, and I believe through various people at the time, uh, the medical emergency response team was formed um, to, to create a, a kind of increased level of care. And it was it, it's went through a few iterations in the first few years prior to me deploying on it. I was certainly not the first. I think the first teams were out there in 2006. Um, some paramedics, doctors and nurses, and I believe initially ODPs actually worked on the helicopter. Uh, they pioneered the concept. Um, and the time I started deploying around about 2009, it was it was well established. No, that's 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 uh, that's that's a really good good history to hear. Um, could you just um, maybe expand a little bit about what what what's the aim of the the MERT team? Um, is is there a specific role it has for for a type of casualty, or you know what what would be the sort of you know the operational scope of of you know the the, the drive behind it really? So at the time, it was to get to seriously injured casualties as quick as possible on the battlefield. Um, and traditionally, as I said previously, we used to send somebody like myself, who at the time was a medic. Uh, we do a bit of pre-hospital care, but it wasn't that advanced. Um, and I think the MERT was designed to advance that. And and the, the phrase that was coined is we're, we're bringing the hospital to the patient, not the patient to the hospital. Um, and so the team developed into uh, generally a consultant-led physician team. So um either an emergency medicine or anaesthetic consultant. It would have a, um, that could be from any service, Navy, Army or Air Force. That was a tri-service aspect of the aircraft. Um, and then it would have a REF emergency nurse on board. Uh, their role was to do all of the, as well as treating the patients, they liaise with the air crew on comms, uh, go all the information coming from the battle space and things like that. And then there was two REF paramedics on board as well. And between those paramedics, they would rotate dictated by the job conditions who would like getting off the helicopter and actually organizing the recovery of the casualties from the the battlefield to to the helicopter sometimes that was very close and a few meters away sometimes it was a little bit more challenging and um, but the, the the key concept here is a team because it not only was it the medical people on board it was the force protection guys so there was four force protection guys on they were brought from any service initially and then they eventually became as conflict went on it became ref regiment gunners who provided that service um so they'd have like a corporal and three sacs on board to to take on the kinetic activity if it was a hot landing zone and stuff like that um and obviously most importantly and without it none of this would have worked would be the aircrew um so depending whether the aircraft generally in afghanistan was a chinook occasionally we flew we had to fly in uh merlins and stuff due to serviceability but Almost 99% of the time it was a Chinook and that was two pilots and two loadmasters in the back. Uh, they were crucial to getting you there, you know, operating the aircraft, flying in, you know, some of the night jobs. I don't know how they flew, flew those aircrafts at that time of night and landed us in one piece, but they did. Yeah, I haven't had similar experiences of flying at night in Chinooks and tactical environments. Yeah, I do often wonder, but they do they, they, they do an absolutely outstanding job and their skill levels are, are 
are absolutely astonishing. Um, Colin, I could never see anything when I got off the helicopter at night with the NVG on, so I don't know how they landed the aircraft. <laughs> maybe, maybe we shouldn't ask them. <laughs> but no, that that's uh, fascinating. So it sounds to me the the whole concept was to to up the skill level of trauma care and get that to the casualty as early as possible. You you were saying it's a consultant led level of care we were taking. I mean, what what would be the sort of call-outs on the Merck team, how, how busy would it, would it get? Is, are you going out once a week or is it a, a lot? I mean, the, the the deployment period I deployed between 2009 and 2012 was probably the peak. It actually peaked in the summer of 2010. Uh, I was actually, one of my last roles in the Air Force was I was a research fellow at James Cook. So I, I had the privilege of uh, assessing all of the casualty data from all patients on Mert. Uh, it was a privilege to do that and, and and learn so i learned a lot about the data and the flows and the trends and stuff from there um but in the height of it i'll be honest um you could you could do uh we used to work 24 hours on 24 hours standby you could do up to eight missions in a 24-hour period and um, that could sometimes be 20 to 30 patients in that period uh other days you might see two or three patients but in, in the peak of it in 2010, um, it, the operational tempo was intense. It was high. And even on your 24-hour standby, you'd often get called in, activate a second helicopter. Wow. Um, okay. So it was generally busier in the daytime, uh, less activity on the night. Um, but yeah, it, it would be, and it wouldn't just be service personnel. It would be local civilians, um, uh, surprisingly a significant amount of children um, who'd inadvertently, you know, stepped on an IED um, and, and stuff like that. So the, the it was 99.9% trauma based um from blast or gunshot wounds um and the I think I'm just plucking the data off my head from memory now but I generally got an okay memory I'm sure roughly around 30% of those patients were civilians wow that's quite and you were saying within those civilians there was I mean and and I think uh, conflict uh, data backs this up a significant part of that was pediatric as well yeah, paediatrics was it's kind of like a surprise when you first start doing it. Mm. Um, and the paediatric jobs would be difficult for many reasons, um, but it, it would all often be volume. So there'd be a group of kids playing mm. in the in in the Afghan village street, for want of a better word, and they'd go off and and they just accidentally. Fall. It generally was standard on IEDs, and mm-hmm. you'd often get a couple of fatalities, um, a couple of them seriously injured with multiple amputations, maybe open abdomens, and then there'd be a few caught in the frag kind of range that were, were also injured. So mm-hmm. pediatric jobs tended to be at times, you know, somewhere between four and six patients every time on the back of the helicopter. Um, so straight away, your, your pediatrics are challenging, the challenging in an operational environment. And then you've got the constraints of being in the back of a Chinook, um, which would also add, add on to that. Mm-hmm. Occasionally they were deliberately used to attract assets into areas um so it was a known tactic they'd use children to attract assets in and then they'd kinetically try and engage with you when you arrived on uh, on scene and stuff like that so um sadly i think from a from a taliban viewpoint i think it was uh, the the local populations were unfortunately used in a very negative way um to, and stuff like that. some of it was just purely the, the 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 conflict of war is in the sense they'd accidentally stand on an id that was probably instant, intended for a soldier um, other times it was a deliberate act to try and attract helicopters in, knowing that we will respond in those situations to to see um, if they can inflict any damage or harm on on the respondent personnel. Yeah, the joys of warfare. It's it's it's, ne- it's never a pleasant environment, is it? Uh, it's pretty it's pretty yeah. grim, Colin, yeah. as you as you know. Um, and um, it's you know it is it is the it is the side effect. What was a good thing though is when when they were injured, we we were able to help. 
Um, we were able to give you know it's not the kids' fault, is it? They they've done nothing wrong, age you know young age or anything like that. They're not radicalized or anything like that. So these are just innocent children, no different than our own children, um, getting caught in the the side effect of it all, really. So it was it was difficult but rewarding when you could go and make a difference sometimes. And some of those kids would would get up and walk out of hospital and and be fine. Obviously, many of them weren't so you know, either were fatalities or if they were seriously injured as well, although we could give that real good quality emergency care, surgical care at Camp Bastion was phenomenal. You know what I mean? It was, it was world leading at the time. It's, you, you know, you always wonder once they've been discharged from that regime and back into <laughs> any, any nation, but Afghanistan at the time, um, what level of ongoing support, rehabilitation, acceptance, et cetera, do those, those people get? I think you've brought a really interesting point there. Um, when you're dealing in, non-first world countries as again once that patient gets gets discharged from basically a first world type type medical facility what is the ability for those families to then because it's often built on the family supporting the the patient you it, it is an interesting debate how much the the local community can support them when often those communities are sub, as sort of uh, subsistence communities and, and very low income often uh, marginal farming communities um that there's a whole debate on you know uh, what what chance does the the injured child have going in, into that society it's, and I, I think that's a big thing in the aid, aid agency is to make sure that the care given is appropriate to the society that they're going into. It's, it's quite a big debate, uh, as, as you pointed out. You know, what, what is the future of those childs when, when you drop into second, third world subsistence communities? It's, it's, it's an interesting one to, to set, probably not for this podcast, but, you know, it's, it, it's an interesting dynamic of, of dealing in those environments. Yeah, I, I think you raise a really valid point there, Colin. And um, I did a tour in Afghanistan as well on the ground, um, deploying, and 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 we used to set up like community clinics and and things like that too. Um, and one of the aims when I was setting that up with with the unit I was with, it, it was very much of not being over advanced with it, uh, doing basic things and trying to educate basic things. But there was there was there was also inequalities within those communities. Um, you know, uh, gender inequality was huge, um, and I. I never saw female patients they weren't allowed to be seen and if we'd set up a little clinic and stuff for hearts and minds it was always male patients i was allowed to see understandably culturally um so uh, you know the children whoever was injured at what stage did they get their, that support in the communities what i would say is they they from experience in the villages and stuff like that very difficult environments for those people that were living in compared to to the developed world but they did have strong uh, what appeared to me to be strong community score of culture um as you say looking after each other's families that's you know if, if we looked at our uk social care for example and i don't want to sidetrack here um you know that we probably don't have the same level of family support in how we look after our loved ones and relatives within the united kingdom as as for example they did in afghanistan and places like that no it's, it's fascinating because and, and i think it comes back to as part of any preparation for a medic working in a remote location is to understand the society that you're working in and some of the advantages of working in that society is to see strong some some very strong family groups and values but also some of the limitations to to the support those families can provide as well often economically driven as well uh, i think it's always an important area for anybody wanting to work remote to understand you know really understand the dynamics of the society that they're working in um you know it's, it's it's a really good point and not not a point i expected to bring out today but i think that's a a, a fascinating point that you brought out and and really important for anybody going remote 
um, and, and, and giving aid or or, or or military care, I think. You know, fascinating stuff. Just yeah, we can't uh, carry a CT scanner on our back, mate. That's for sure. Although everything's getting smaller. Um, so, um, yeah. So just um, for a lot of our listeners who won't understand what the pack of the Chinook's like, obviously, um, I think both of us have spent many hours in them shaking around. Could you just explain what it's like to be in the back of one of these aircraft when they're actually flying tactically as well? Um, because I don't think it's, it's very, I, I think it's really relevant if you've never done it just to try and get a feel for, for what you're trying to work in. I mean, the battlefield helicopters, Colin, so, and, and, and by the nature of it, be simple, but advanced. They, they. I mean, I'm no uh, aircraft expert. Um, they were the, the Chinooks were surprisingly large in the back, which was a unique aspect of them. They had body ar- uh, aircraft armor, which was helped protect us when the aircraft was taking rounds. Um, we could eff- effectively fit the equivalent of two resuscitation bays in there, which would get good high level of care. Once the casualties went above two, it was a bit more spread them out, stand over them and do as much as you can sort of thing. Um, but the environment was unique. So in in the winter, it would be freezing. You could barely feel your hands. You know, there's no windows in these things for tactical reasons and et cetera like that. So they would um, it would be bitterly cold and difficult to operate uh, at night. You had to operate under under darkness in effect which was also difficult and in the summer it would be 60 plus degrees heat and the plastic aspects of your weapon systems would sometimes melt on 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 the weapons you know what i mean i remember seeing melted weapons handles and stuff like that on people's weapon systems um so the extreme heat and what we can't get away from is the crazy level of noise a chinook generates i don't know if this figures correctly but i'm sure it's around about 120 130 decibels um, and uh, I, I suppose if you're a roller coaster addict, imagine the oldest roller coaster you could find with the most extreme turns in it. When 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 those Chinook pilots are operating tactically and low, um, and pushing the, the the aircraft to its limits to get there quickly, um, which is understandable. It, it, the vibration increases the more you push the aircraft. They were they were quite bone rattling. However, what I would say is once your patient was on board, you got used to it. Even going to the jobs. And they were great aircrafts. The pilots were so skilled at knowing when you were busy. They, one of the, you know, I always used to think I was chatting to the loadies, and they would say, "Well, I'd keep an eye on what you're doing." And if it looked like it was really important, I'd tell the like the air, the pilots to ease off a bit and stuff like that. This is all unbeknown to us, you know what I mean? We're just operating the back. And once you got your patience on board, I'll be honest. There's very few times um, I thought the aircraft was a, a limiting factor. Um, okay. Communications, we had headsets on to communicate. Sometimes they would fail. Your hand signals, shouting was acceptable. But yeah, you just got used to the environment. Don't get me wrong; it's been ten years probably since I operated uh, operationally out of Chinook now. Um, maybe it's nine, ten years, and uh, I, I probably wouldn't rush back now. Now I'm a bit older and a and a bit wiser and a bit less able. Um, but at the time, it was it was a, it was a privilege to work on those aircraft. They are beautiful beasts of the sky, for want of a better word. Yeah, it is. Um, I think one of my I haven't spent many hours in them as well. It's just to see how nimble they are and what they can do with them. But inside them, as I say, it's it's a whole different world. I, I think the point you brought is the sheer noise of these things, especially when they're cranking up and, and doing really tight turns and flying tactically. The noise levels and vibration that's going on is... But it's interesting you say that that is zoned out when you're in your casualty. And I, and I wonder Completely. if that was... I wonder if that was down to one the focus you've got, uh, but also the team training, um, where your your cone, your, what I'd call a sort of a cone of awareness, is completely now patient and team focused, and you've managed to zone that out. I, I, 
it'd be interesting to to understand you know to maybe study that area more how much you can completely zone out from the adverse environment to be patient focused which sounds like what was happening it's cognitive load isn't it and like for example once you were in like go and not getting off the back of the helicopter i had to prioritize different things you know it wasn't always connected colin some land a lot of the landing zones were perfectly safe you'd land nothing had happened you'd bring the casualties on it was dead easy and as much as we all remember the extremis of, of these environments the environment was ironically quite okay a lot of the times but when I was getting off the back of the helicopter and it was a kinetic environment, we'd often know it's going to be kinetic. My, my I tuned my my cognitive load, my bandwidth into certain things then. Yes, get the casualties on safely, but let's not get shot. Let's not make the situation worse. Let's not delay the amount of time on the ground. Once you were on the aircraft, I kind of effectively took that that part of my cognitive load, put it in, put it in, put it in my uh, ammo bag for want of a better word, mm-hmm. or, or on the side of the chair. Um, fictitiously speak, and 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 release that because that's then the air crew's problem, you know. And there's no point in me worrying about whether we're being shot at, whether the aircraft's damaged or anything like that. It's a waste of my brain's capacity, and and therefore you maximising that cognitive load to focus on what's in front of you. And you're right. I think you used the word training. The training was intense. The training was really good. I've I now in the civilian environment. I through through the work I do with my own company, both uh, I do a lot of the training methodologies I learned in that environment, you know, high stress training and things like that. And I bring that into, into some of the more civilian settings. Uh, and, and I think that was learned by the military because mm-hmm. I always remember my first triple amputee and the first job I ever did. And it just felt like a training exercise. It literally felt like a training exercise um don't get me wrong there was a moment when you first see that real casually for real and the simulation which was extensively high in, in preparation for this doesn't ever make up for the real thing but i, I you know maybe he's had a, a, a second or two freeze when you think wow this is this is happening to a young person um and then bang it was just training mode that's the only way i can describe it and and we trained extensively prior to deploying but then every day every day when you went on a mission, there'd be training scenarios in the back of the aircraft. Um, first thing of the day, unless you were on a job, later in the afternoon, if not, you know, we we would always practice as a team because then, then it became a subconscious skill. I knew what the doctor was going to do. I knew what my other paramedic was going to do. I knew what the emergency nurse was going to do. And it was just slick. Oh, that, that sounds fascinating. And I think what you're bringing out here, although your individual skills are important, it's the synergy. And I think synergy is an important word here. It's that synergy of understanding your team um, and and almost working seamlessly. Um, as I say, when you're communicating with 130 decibels in the background and you're still achieving successful outcomes on, on complex patients, there is that bonding as a team, isn't it? I think that that's what's probably making the big difference, that everybody sort of is already understanding almost what the next person's doing next it's i think it becomes a bit seamless when you've got that level of training and then you apply it it's 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 impressive when you see that happening um no excellent that's that sounds absolutely fantastic um just from your experience um one of the things i always find is that people learn really well from stories um and and experiences is is there any particular stories that you could bring out from you if maybe there's one particular thing stands out or, or maybe two is anything you can think of in particular stands out as a story that you'll end a particular thing from at all anything anything you can um, think of? yeah I, and I, when i teach people a lot of the time as well i often say you learn more by your mistakes than you do what you did well and 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 you know we were never perfect no healthcare provider is ever perfect and then 
And I remember, I remember one, I remember a lot of jobs really that, that it does fade with time. But I remember an American soldier coming on board the aircraft with gunshot wound to the chest, and um, we started we started the resuscitation as we do. This was just as we were the, the big debate around doing CPR was getting discussed within the military environment. We certainly weren't using an adrenaline in, in traumatic cardiac arrest, and we were re, we were just starting to have this conversation around, and it must have been around about the 2010 mark when thinking about it whether we should be doing active CPR in trauma patients um, as, a, as, as at all, or even as a priority, because really it's not, it's not the, that's not the reversible cause. And I remember the guy come on and, and, and we, we, we were doing CPR on him and we'd attempt, we tried, uh, res, we tried to do thoracostomies at the time. And it, it was that constant pressure of the environment. And it was, I remember it was a new paramedic and I think I was managing the airway and they'd attempted to do a thoracostomy while CPR was going on. Obviously, it wasn't unsuccessful, and we had to stop it all sorted out, which was done quick enough and at no detriment to the patient. And and that's something, I think that's something I've taken away, and I've, I've, I've presented a lot of conferences around traumatic cardiac arrest whilst I was in the military and, and the subsequent years of... Um, I've I've left and, and, and still even talk about it now. I get asked occasionally to talk about it and stuff like that, and it was the different approach that you have to take to traumatic cardiac arrest, I think, is something I take away from it. Um, mm-hmm. And if you look at the military ones, it would be, you know, hypervolemia and stuff like that. Well, if somebody's lost all their blood volume until you've closed the box and filled the bag up, CPR is not actually going to do anything. It's just going to get in the way, the speed at which you reverse that cause. And and that job just always highlights in my mind when I think of how I approach a traumatic cardiac arrest and something I try to teach my own paramedics who work extensively out on the road now and stuff like that is as much as we have protocols and guidelines out there, there's sometimes, you know, they're designed for the 95% of the population, 95% of it. If you look at a, a bell chart, for want of a better word, in research, you know, we, we put things into this 95% bracket and, the, and there's outliers. And, and the traumatic cardiac arrest in certain circumstances is that outlier and, and therefore think differently. You know, airway is vitally important, but reversing the cause is the key. CPR may not be effective in hypervolemia, in attention pneumothorax, you know, it, it, and therefore doing CPR, if it then delays you replacing blood volume or um, doing your thing, your, your thing of thoracostomies correctly or whatever the procedure may be, um, don't let don't let CPR get in the way of it. Mm-hmm. Make sure you get the, the, the life saving treatment done, reversible cause done in trauma and then and then and then address it. Now, it's in the civilian setting. You can't not do CPR. People would look at you like you're crazy. I've talked about it for 10 years. And it still happens now, um, but you know, if if I was had blood loss and 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 somebody arrived to me with the capability of giving blood, I'd much prefer them to prioritise giving me blood than doing CPR, as an example. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and the learning point from it's really interesting. And I think what that brings out, and it's some something I pick up on quite a lot, is that we should always question why we do things, not just do it because yes, protocols are important. But we've got to, I think we've got to justify what we're doing. And that justification comes from a deep understanding of what's causing the problem because you've got to fix the cause. So and, and I think what you're bringing out here, you, you question, well, why are we doing chest compressions if there's no warm, sticky fluid going around the body? You know, that, that little word why is so important. I think I always encourage anybody that I'm teaching to always, if they're not sure, say, why, why, why are you teaching me this? Why should I be doing this? Justify the, the rationale behind what we're trying to do here. I think that makes a big difference. And I think that's what I'm getting from what you're saying now. It's, yeah, it, it's, if, it's justifying why you're doing something, because what's the outcome from it instead of just doing it because the protocol tells me, which is often right, but 
And, and we were very fortunate on the MERT. They, they used to have these CSOPs, clinical standard operating procedures, and, and, and one of that around traumatic cardiac arrest allowed that. It, it came in around about that time. I can't remember exactly, Colin. Sorry, it was a while ago. <laughs> and I remember I remember cutting and pasting this, and I still use it in presentations to, to this day. And it was, you know, chest compressions are not your priority in most in most of the cases you come across. Mm-hmm. And it freed us up to not worry about that. It's difficult in a, in a, in a civilian environment where predominantly the arrests are medical in nature mm-hmm. and, and therefore not doing CPR. It's just psychologically, you know, we used mm-hmm. to get the uh, gunners to do a lot of the CPR. So we had our hands free to do other procedures. And, you know, people just want to help. And when somebody's not breathing and doesn't appear to have a pulse, they want to do CPR, even though they're probably just in low flow state. But it's mm-hmm. it's very hard to break that psychological barrier. And it's not a negative. And people often use are oh, the worst phrase in the English languages. We've always done it that that way, and it is the worst phrase, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's not the individual's fault that they've done it that way because that's all they know. So, and and we're very critical of people nowadays. And you know, you talk about lessons learned as as you mature and get get older, you get less critical of, the, of things. I think I don't know what you mm-hmm. think, but I'm certainly less critical. Yeah. And I, I see that now on things like social media and Twitter. People hammer at each other over statements and things like that. And it's, it's you know, the person was probably just thinking they were doing the right thing. But if it's the wrong thing in a, in a, in a cult environment, it's sometimes people hammer that. Um, and it's I think we need to foster a lesson is fostering environments in, in, in all settings of healthcare that, you know what, everyone can't know everything. So if somebody doesn't know as much as you, give them a break and 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 educate in a positive way, not a negative way. You know, that's so important um, because what we do in, in pre-hospital emergency care and probably even more so when you work, start working remote uh, and austere and, you know, austere locations, which can be either remote or often not as well. It's tough. And I think having a supportive team around you where actually, um, I, I mean, I remember when I used to work in the oil industry on, on a safety level, they had a no blame culture because they wanted to know if you made a mistake so they could analyze that mistake and work out how to make it better. Um, where I think if we operate in a, in a caring and a life-saving environment and there's a fear culture, we, we never reveal our mistakes and we never get better. Um, so I think that's really important when you're bringing out for team dynamics uh, for anybody who's working under the, you know, the, the stress that we do in, in some of the jobs that we have to go to is trying to, make sure you're in that team where there's no blame and and it mistakes yeah no we don't want mistakes do we but if they are mistakes let, let let's be honest about them and then have a de- an open constructive debrief to to avoid them and get better uh, and be constructive i think that's 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 so important on any medical team working in, in any stressful place we call it the just culture now <clears throat> the nhs do and we do in this organization um, you know, it's it's not uh, you don't want people to blame because you want people to come out at the end of the day. We're humans. Does the person who works in Santander dealing with your finances or the mobile phone company ever not make a mistake? Of course they don't. Our mistakes in healthcare can be more impactful. I agree. Um, but we must create environments of of, of support and, and, and learning, um, not disregarding complete malpractice, obviously, or, or repetitive things. But people people should be when somebody makes a mistake, they should feel free to go don't think I did as well as I did there because by doing that we'll always have a, an environment of constant improvement I've never done a job where I, I, I thought I've done it 100% spot on and never 
Um, and I, I doubt anybody who's who, if anybody does listen to this, Colin, I'm sure they do. But, um, you know, anybody listening to this, if they feel they've been through their medical career and, and done and, and, and had a 100 percent perfect job, I'd, I'd be surprised anybody would admit to that, because I, I honestly could never admit to that in my entire life. And, and the, many of these things, it's super tiny things to improve on. But if we have that environment, that's what I liked about Mert. It was we did these debriefs after them and it was like. It, it almost like a cathartic mental health session as well but it was a cycle of we'd all talk through the job if we had time sometimes we're back-to-back missions and we been, and we had to document this on some paperwork and seeing like is there anything we need to change is there any equipment we need to change it was like a process to improve but everyone and everyone had a different viewpoint of the, of the job and everyone different things and you that was a great learning lesson when you go oh next time let's do it this way tweak it a bit there and change this a bit there and don't get me wrong sometimes you'd have an odd job that you don't come across often you think oh we we, we need this bit of equipment we, that would be helpful or whatever um and and therefore those kind of debriefings and 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 help learn and an education and also makes people if people did feel a bit low after job because they didn't feel as if they did as much as they should have done when you talk about it you probably realize everyone a was feeling the same but b when we actually discuss it everyone probably did a pretty good job Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I'm I'm picking up from that is that the the individual clinical skill that you you brought to the injured people when you were working on Mert was really important. But what probably really helped as much in the success with the that team was, was the, the the culture culture of how that team functioned, where you've got the no blame culture, where you've got constructive debriefs, where you support each other. Um, again, it's very hard to, to to prove these things, but I'm pretty sure given the culture of how that team was working was probably as important as your individual clinical skills. 100% Colin, culture, um, uh, you know, a culture of correctness, I call it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and those around you, you know, there were, there were sometimes difficult experiences and people that have good and bad days, you know, some days, you, you know, you'd, you'd be a bit down the next day, you know, it's deployment, as you know, is it can be long and away from loved ones and stuff. And then the environment you're in is, is often, you know, designed to test you. Um, but, but the team's really important. And one of the unique things that you didn't necessarily, you wouldn't out, out of the team, you wouldn't be best friends with some of these people sometimes you worked with. Um, but there was always a level of mutual respect and, and, and mutual understanding of, um, you know, looking out for each other and all this. And it's something I've, I've, taken from probably from Merck without even realizing it but in the, the work environment is and I try and create in my own working environment now is is an environment where people you know just want to learn and and and, and don't feel pressured and realize you know what it's every day you just got to try and do your best and as much but we have to look after the people the people are the most important people and by looking after the people the patients will then get the best possible care mm. no I think you know that's such an important point it's because the clinical care can't sit in it can't sit in an ivory tower. It's it's got to be part of a functional team, and the more we can progress that functional team and be efficient, then the better outcome for the patient, and and I would suppose the better outcome for the people who are dealing with very traumatic uh, incidents that they're responding to. So, from our own mental health point of view, from a team, if you're in a supportive team, it'd be interesting to see how more how people recover from that being in a supportive team. Again, difficult to to prove. But I'm sure it's got to got to help the scenario uh, when you're in a very functional supportive team dealing yeah. with, with complex trauma. Absolutely. I mean, anybody who says they've got limited effect or no effect from it, are probably, you know, some people cope with it better than others. I, I know from all my deployments, I, I, I think I think that kind of environment catches up with you. I, I would describe it as so. 
I remember the first deployment, it's like a bit of fear, a bit of trepidation. Am I going to be good enough? Then you get in within a week, you feel like a seasoned expert because you've been exposed to so much trauma that you probably wouldn't otherwise have seen in your entire career. Um, and you, you get into the groove with your teammates and, and 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 doing all these things. And then you do multiple deployments. There wasn't a lot of people doing the deployments then, so we were deploying a lot. Um, and 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 then I think it probably gets to a point of after the because it is a bit of an adrenaline rush, and I don't I'm not ashamed to admit that. Um, there's there was something about it that was really quite energizing. Um, but then after a few deployments, I think that wears off, and 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 uh, battlefield bit feet battlefield fatigue possibly or just level of exposure or whatever starts maybe you, you start looking at it a different way um and then people's mental health was key really um there was great support networks i know i remember around the afghan war times there's a lot of criticism in the newspapers and soldiers and people aren't supported i always felt very supported in the military um both by my peers those 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 seniors above you generally had a really caring culture and there was a lot of help available. You know, the Padres, uh, the Padres used to pop around the Merten quite often. Um, I think they they focused on people like ourselves, knowing what we were getting exposed to. And they're, they're a quirky bunch of people, Padres, um, <laughs> with, with 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 some dark humour. Um, I always remember IED Jesus, who uh, one of the Padres used to bring in on a pencil that had no legs, uh, which was quite ironic. Um, but uh, he, he used it as a great way mm-hmm. of opening conversations yeah. and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. then. And some people didn't cope. And it's important that people who are working in remote environments, extreme environments, or any medical environment, healthcare is stressful. If you look at the NHS now, it must be immensely stressful working in the NHS now with the, the level of demand and, and shortages they're, they're suffering from. And I think people just need to accept it's, it's okay not to be okay. And if you're not okay, you need to speak about it. I think methodologies that help are things like that debrief I mentioned. I think if we've seen more of that where everyone openly expresses, you know, there is some stuff in the literature about how that layers the processes in the brain and stuff like that by processing their memories by talking about it and stuff like that. Um, and then if if some people struggle, then fundamentally they need, they need to get the support and help that's out there in these environments. And I think, you know, we used to do something called decompression. It wasn't originally in the deployments, but then they brought in coming to Cyprus for a day on the way back from your deployment and they'd put you on a beach. And it was, it was ironic. The Mert might surprise you, but didn't actually deploy as a team. We deployed as individuals over a four-week cycle doing a three-month tour. And so the, the team wouldn't all change at once, and that was designed to keep continuity in theatre. But it meant when you come back for your decompression, and for want of a better word, um, you were on often on your own. Mm. So you go to Cyprus, you might be there with a load of infantry lads who some of these mates you picked up, and you'd be locked into a camp for 24 hours in Cyprus because that will help you decompress. Um, I, 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 I've never understood the military's theory behind that because I don't think it works. But... Um, you know, they tried. That was their way of trying. You know what I mean? There was padres and all the good stuff there. But I think when people get back, it's 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 talking to those who've had the same lived experience that really helps. And if if I could give anybody top tips from a mental health point of view, is you know talk to those who were involved in it. Talk, you know, always talk about it. Share that experience. Um, and if you do struggle after four to six weeks still with these things, then then do seek help. You know what I mean? Because we, we often undervalue the impact of, of mental health. However, if I, if I was doing the merch job in Afghanistan and I was shot in the arm, I'd get loads of sympathy. Um, if I had a mental health issue, maybe although we accept it more now, people wouldn't see it as the same and still people don't sometimes, but we should do because there's no difference between having a mental health issue than other being shot, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I can't agree with you more. And, and I think what I'm picking up, there's a couple of things I'm picking up from there. There's one, I think if... Um, anybody wants to deploy to 
a high intensity remote location to 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 apply any form of medicine i think one of the things you should probably question your future employers and is to make it's along the line of how supportive is the team i'm going out with you've got to make sure that if you're going to put yourself into that that high intensity environment that you you need to be as sure as possible that the organization and, and your immediate team are absolutely spot on on being supportive and 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 not toxics obviously often a word we use for dysfunctional teams but you've got to make sure you're going into a functional team because if you're not i think it's going to be a very tough deployment wherever you're going and i think the other big thing i'm, I'm getting from what you're saying and, and i think i've seen this a bit myself that it's not a stigma stigma to not cope mentally i've seen some of the toughest people i know have mental problems because they're only humans um, and I think you've got to take the macho-ness out of this and, and just, I suppose, what I'd call check your ego in and accept if you are struggling. That, that's, that doesn't mean to say you're a better or worse person. It, it is just what it is. And, and go and get help. Help's there. Help can be different for different people. Um, but accept that if you're not coping, it, it doesn't. It, there's, there's no detriment to what you are as a human. It's just what you are. And it's like any other illness, I would say. You know, you need help. Totally agree, Colin. I, I had colleagues who were who su- suffered from severe PTSD. Um, uh, some many years couldn't leave their homes and stuff like that, despite support. And even probably to this day, are, are not back to their former selves because of the experience they faced. Uh, I don't mind admitting on the podcast, Colin. I had some EMDR therapy myself after all my deployments. Um, unbeknown to me, you don't realize you these things. I think creep up on you. And it was once I was uh, posted out to Cyprus, and I'd, I think I'd get another deployment notice coming through because somebody had went sick, and it got cancelled in the end randomly. But um, she said my whole persona changed instantly, and there was a like a, a an inbuilt anger that not aimed at them, but just mm-hmm. became an angry person. And, and I didn't even realize it. And she and she said it to me openly, and I was like, bloody hell, you're probably right. So again, I did the sensible thing got referred to, 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 to the CPM, which was quite easy access from the military point of view. Had some, uh, I, probably, I think I think you get like eight sessions of EMDR. It's like, it's like I can only describe it as voodoo magic. Um, you know, they they have flashy lights, put finger wagging and they chat to you about the experiences. And it's, that's why I know a bit about it because I've read around a lot about it as a result. And it's about certain memories not being layered in your brain correctly. I was relatively okay, but there was an issue there. And, and I, 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 I identified quite, and thankfully so, that actually that's the same as if I've injured myself in other ways. So sought some help out there. And I, thankfully I was quite mild and didn't impact my life or anything but for other people it's very severe and some of those people don't feel like they can get help and i think that's one thing we should do across all healthcare settings and, and ems settings is, is encourage people to get help when they need it don't get me wrong it's also okay to be okay because sometimes you mm. are just okay after a job and you don't need yeah. any support and and sometimes i think we want to over medicalize or over treat people um but we need to create these environments and i don't think anybody's got it 100 percent right yet in in which people can talk about it and i i think the biggest biggest factor there's your peers those those around you those you trust to start with i think that solves a lot of issues and then and then if it rumbles on after that that's when you need to get the professionals involved yeah you know you brought it a really interesting point is that it's okay to be okay um the reading i've done around the subject um one of the big points i've picked up from the research i done is that most people who successfully respond to to traumatic events are okay uh, yeah. because we're, we're, and, and there are a, there is a series of natural coping mechanisms that we all go through to deal with them and they can those normal coping mechanisms are often can be diagnosed as abnormal where they're actually normal mechanisms um 
but I think we see this in the in the sort of the more popular press where there's a general trait that we tend to say that everybody's involved is abnormally affected. We're actually, as I understand, most people are involved come out with a positive output from it and are absolutely fine. And it's, it's still okay not to be okay, but it's, yep. I should say it's okay to be okay as well because most people are okay. It's okay to be whatever you feel you need. Yeah, you yeah. And, and that's the key. And and, yeah. and and people need to get help when they need it. And also if they're okay, they're okay. Yeah. Um, and it's part of that as a society as well. Um, and everyone always says this, and I, and I get frustrated sometimes. And um, obviously I've run like yourself, Colin, I run my own business and, and have a lot of employed staff. And, and, and those people are key to any organization. But I kind of go for the approach. We don't have hard and set policies, you know, somebody has a bereavement they have to have time off or, or if somebody's exposed to a traumatic job we allow them to cope with that in their own way some people do need support some people don't want support we try and look out for these things through trim and other things where we can um but you know it, people just have to find a way but what we've got to learn to do and it's something i've been grappling with over the last probably six months if i'm being honest how do i build up resilience in my team because actually i think i had a level of resilience i think a lot of people deployed on mert had a level of resilience due to the exposure of training it's really hard to replicate that in the civilian environment because the system just does not allow the training time. It's physically, there's just no, no time to do it. So we push people heavily operationally and probably let them down. And I would say as an organization, we probably don't do enough training with our staff as well because of operational demand. It's a trade-off, but how do we build that resilience? And that's something we, we, we're trying to, we introduce like quarterly training and stuff like that for our like frontline crews and, the last one was based around through demand around like improving pre-hospital resuscitation. So we did intense one day courses for all our um, uh, ambulance crews where we'd, we, we'd hammer them. Like I did got trained on MERT prior to deploying on MERT at HOSPEX. We did effectively a PHR HOSPEX as they would have called it. It was the military. Um, and, and we really give them intense clinical scenarios so that actually, when they go out to the routine arrest, it becomes more second nature. And, and then, because what I think a lot of people fear is they haven't done enough for the patient. Or actually, when you when you when you step back and you listen to a debrief, like, oh, I didn't do as well as I could, and you've watched that as an independent person, you're like, I thought you did pretty good there. It's it's hopefully educating them that actually, you know, it's building up. Like you can't always do save them all. Or you can't, you know, a lot of people died on the helicopter. We 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 hear about the ones we save. We don't hear about the many many that we didn't save, and and some of them were just unable to be saved and that would be quite a downer some weeks when especially a job after job where if you mm. if you had those type of patients um but we need to build resilience into people where, where we can and um and and i think there's a lot of things i know there was an emergency service uh mental health symposium recently wasn't there at silverstone that the college of paramedics police and fire all got together i couldn't go to it unfortunately um and and i think there's a lot more awareness now so that's i think that's got to be a positive and if you think about it, a lot of this probably did start from places like the Marines, because trim came from the Marines, I believe, and then we started using it wider in the military. Um, you know, war and conflict also accounts for other changes in healthcare that we probably don't realise, and maybe the, the 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 subconscious legacy of places like Afghanistan and Iraq and other uh, and other places. Um, you know, I can only imagine those people in Ukraine now must be uh, the exp the unbelievable exposure they must be getting and, and and stuff like that. But we learn we learn from these things that you know that we've got the physical but the mental as well, and and that's great great things. If that's come out of war zones, um, not only the advances in clinical med medicine but those to support individuals, and I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, and I think what we have to do with that is make sure we maintain that knowledge, you know, and it's not lost, isn't it? I think there's a responsibility if we've gained that knowledge. We, we keep it and progress it. I think that's that's one of the great challenges post-conflict 
uh, that that we maintain that level of um, of uh, preciseness and on how we've dealt with those conditions and, and continue it and and advance it in, in more peacetime settings as well. I think that's a continued challenge uh, post in most post conflicts. Now, absolutely fascinating. Just um, if you were to think of maybe a, a couple of points from your experience that you could feedback to listeners who may be looking to work in very you know high intensity um, pre pre hospital environments like like similar to the MERT teams is there a couple of points that you could give them that 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 you think that that might be of benefit to them at all yeah definitely <clears throat> so i say this a lot in presentations now something i've learned is firstly is don't fear failure because if you fear failure or you think you're going to fail you're setting yourself up to fail so always believe in yourself when you're going to, if you've done the training and, and get the right training if you've done that training when the time comes you'll do it and you'll do it 99.9% of the times so you'll do it right. So don't let the fear of not being good enough, not being able to cope with that environment, get into your head. Cause I think that that creates a doubt that is really hard to get out of there. And it's something I try and encourage with, with, with NQP paramedics and other people like that to really, really back yourself where you can. Cause I think it helps with performance. I'm no performance expert. I know there's, cleverer people than me out there. Uh, I think is it Stephen Hearns with his peak performance and he does a lot of stuff around this. Um, those guys are experts in this area, but just from experience, I think believe in yourself and believe that you're going to succeed and not fail. Or I put it another way, set yourself up to succeed. Um, and then the the other point is another point to, to take away is basics. Basics save lives. Honestly, you know, ultrasound machines and all this other stuff and don't get me wrong, we used it all and it's all very exciting stuff and I've used it throughout my career and, and stuff like that. But what I learned from the military is Merck gets a lot of publicity. The fact we're talking is because I deployed on a helicopter and the Chinook and everyone loves it, you know what I mean? But if the guys on the ground, the, the, these, the guys' mates, the medics, the CMTs, those guys were absolutely phenomenal. And what they did is they got there in worse situations than me, in firefights, under pressure, and they applied tourniquets, they did simple medicine. And 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 fundamentally, that's what saved the lives. Because if they hadn't done their job, all as we'd have been doing is picking up bodies. And, and I think people forget that sometimes is the basics save the lives, whether it's in the civilian center through CPR and making sure you've got an airway and defibrillation in a, in a, in a medical cardiac arrest, or in a military environment, making sure you've got things like tourniquets, hemorrhage control devices, chest seals, whatever it may be, without getting in the debate what works and what doesn't, then I think the basics... It's got to be, you know, trust yourself to succeed and do the basics well. Everything else is window dressing. You know what? That's that's so so interesting. I can't tell you how many times on TSG talk when we've said, could you give us two points to go back to know your basics and be very very good at them? Um, it's it's something it continuously comes out as what would be a point I could give somebody: do your basics well. Uh, and continually do them well. It's I think I think that's it's basically underpins almost every conversation we have. Uh, so it's really interesting. Again, you, you've said from your experience that it's the basics that matter. Without them, it doesn't matter. And all the clever stuff doesn't really matter. So it's just to finish off this evening. This is a question we ask all of all of our guests on on TSG Talk, and we we get some wonderful answers, but it certainly gets some head scratching as well. But if you were to select one piece of medical kit that you would always take with you, no matter where you were, what 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 do you think it might be? That's an interesting question, Colin. To be honest, um, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> so my, my brain is racing away. Yeah. And I, the problem is, 
depends on the environment. And I will answer mm. the question. I'm mm. going to go politician on you now. Okay, okay. so That's it fair. massively depends on the environment because in mm. X environment you'd want, for example, if you're in a cold environment, you might want hypothermia kit as a, as a priority. Warm environment, different equipment. You know, I've just mentioned the basics: tourniquets, hemorrhage control devices, and all these things. Mm. Well, I would say I'd never want a fancy piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I just think there's much many things. However, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw your mind a bit here, and I'm gonna say I would if I had to take one piece of equipment only. It would be an alcohol swab. Right. Okay. That's a new one. Can what's your rationale behind that? So when people are unwell, trauma, medical illness, doesn't matter what environment, people feel sick, don't they? Mm-hmm. And so what we do is as medical people, we wanna we wanna cannulate them, we wanna give them an anti-emetic, a danzatron, metacopramide, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever cyclazine, whatever you whatever you fancy you'd you'd give in there. Um and people don't know that if you just get the if you just open an alcohol wipe and get the patient to sniff it. In 90% of cases, it stops them nausea and stops them being sick. Okay. And it's light as hell. You don't have to do any invasive procedure. And it's readily available in and it costs about 0.01 pence a little square. Um, and the reason I, I bring this one up now you mentioned it is a, during the pandemic, there was a couple of drugs we were struggling to get and a Danzatron was one of them. So we, we ran out of a Danzatron and, and on, we have a WhatsApp group amongst my frontline paramedics and and, and, and ACAs and technicians and Everyone's like, oh, we've run out of Danzatron, blah, blah, blah. And, and I just put a message on the group and I went, just get them to sniff an alcohol wipe. And honest to God, it caused a fury. Oh, <laughs> and he's trying to be tight, this, that, and the other. And then luckily somebody went off and, and Googled it and got the research and like then posted up the art the articles and they're like, no, this is actually a thing. So then honest to God, people started using it and the feedback was phenomenal. The paramedics even now say to me loads of times, oh, I didn't give a Danzatron today. I just got them a sniff on an alcohol wipe and it worked perfectly well. So for me, the golden nugget is definitely an wow. alcohol wipe. And I didn't think of it. it I remember it was Aidan Barron. He's a guy from uh, Australia. Uh, he was a paramedic now trained to be a doctor. He's <clears> quite <throat> big on social media with POCUS. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing him at, the, at a conference present like 10 quick facts. And he, and that was one of the things he presented. So I went away and Googled it as you do and looked at some of the papers. And obviously people will say Google's not the best way to look at research, but and yeah, it's it's a thing, and uh, it honest to God works. <laughs> that was not an answer I was expecting, but you know what? Um, I'm going to pop that in my kit because I I still do some medical cover for an under 14 rugby team, and it's surprising how many injuries we have to deal with, uh, and and all sorts. And that's I'm going to put that in my kit. So I'm going to, I'm yeah, going to absolutely have a little it. look, do a little yeah. do a little uh, thing, and you'll. The articles are out there. Yeah, it's uh, it's really effective. Honest to God, I remember reading it and I was like, oh, mm. that's a load of rubbish. I thought he was just being quirky. And then I, was, mm. I read the paper and I was like, hmm, the paper seems to have some legs, legs right. to it. And, and I tried it and it worked. And then when that happened with the Adandatron shortage we had, mm-hmm. um, like honestly, my paramedics were just like mind blown by it. Fantastic. That is an absolutely wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful answer. No, look, Andy, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you today and I, I've learned so much from uh from, from our conversation if I could just try and summarize maybe some of the main points that I've got from it I think what what I've got is that part of the success on the with the Mert team when you're dealing in a really high stress high intensity environment is that part of your success is the training uh, both your individual skills but the team training and you can't have one or the other I think to to create that successful resuscitation of a really complex casualty in a really complex area. Everybody needs those individual medical skills, but that team has got to work in absolute synergy. So the team training is probably as important as the clinical training. I don't think you can separate them. I think they're, they're almost merged into one. Um, and I think 
anybody deploying to an area that could be facing the complex trauma patient and it's a team approach needs to train the team and not the individual that that, that would think would be quite 100%. a big thing you know, in my organisation, we uh, on the back of our uh, every uniform is, is hashtag uh, one team. Mm. Uh, and it might sound really naughty to you and, and, and stuff like that, but it, it's it's kind of that approach I learned from that military environment. If You know what? We're not always going to get on. We're never always going to agree. There's going to be different opinions. Sometimes people need to be leaders. Sometimes people need to be followers. But if everyone mucks in as a team and, and, and makes a great effort um to work as a team and i think this is what Murph taught me the most is that that team synergy is really mm -hmm. important and i'm we're hugely for, fortunate those who served on Murt now and i'm just a little plug here colin mm -hmm. so i apologize but there was a recently um uh, just over 18 months ago um a couple of people got together not me but people who'd served on Murt and formed something called the Murt club i've just and, seen um, it the, just seen it on the internet actually i was looking at it yeah yep. so i'm um we the last two years we've marched at the cenotaph behind the kazi club for those behind the injured soldiers which is a huge privilege obviously to march behind those guys um and it's it, it's something people like sean pascoe and others and and charlie thompson sort of some of the pioneers of the, of the thing andy smith they've they've and a few others including the air crew and the and the force protection guys have created this club and and we we meet every year to go do the the march pass now we're the only uh group that has servant personnel and veterans marching because it's normally a veterans march so there's a mixture of uniform and non-uniform people like myself marching that and 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 they've 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 generated huge amounts of funding for this club which is amazing i don't know how they've done it um, hopefully I haven't rubbed any banks or anything. Um, and like there's, they're putting things like family days on mm -hmm. completely free to club members and to allow people who experienced during that, that kind of high intensity Afghanistan period to get together and, and, and stuff. And I think I just thought that was worth a mention because actually the fact that 10 years later, people have made the effort to, to form something like that, to, to support people in the wider network and stuff like that is, is, is really important. So um, I just wanted to give them a bit of a plug. So we don't yeah. mind Colin. No, absolutely. And uh, well, that's certainly something we can pop up on the LinkedIn page as, as part of the. When, yeah. When, when you post that, I'll give you all the, uh, the yeah. links I'll get. And, and but yeah, yeah it's, it, it's, and it's always looking for members from that period to join it and, hmm. and to provide, you know, just a nice place to go really. Yeah, no, absolutely. Fantastic. A, a wonderful venture. The other thing I picked up from it was um, I think if you're working in these high intensity environments, you know, you are exposing yourself to a lot of abnormal events. I've often, one of the great phrases I've heard about trauma is, um, or, or people involved in disaster type scenarios, it's normal people being exposed to abnormal things. Um, and I think what I've picked up from you is that it's okay not to be okay. And, and there's ways to, to find out how to be okay again. And it's also okay to be okay. Um, but you have to, I think if you understand you've, you, you're working in within those parameters, except that you, you're a human. All humans have limitations, no matter who you are. Um, and just understand if the, if it's not quite right, then that's okay. But it's it's no detriment to who you are. Just go and get help because a mental condition is as complex or dangerous as as a physical condition, and it needs they both need treated. And the environments we're we're looking to go into. You you are going to you, there is an there could be a good outcome there could be a bad outcome but how you deal with that is recognizing it and being able and knowing you've got access to to help as you need it I think that that's a big thing I've picked up from it. Hundred percent agree, Colin. As, if you look if you look at yourself and I, I probably eat more cakes than you do. Um, and so if I was to keel over of a heart attack today and 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 get resuscitated and end up in hospital and get all the treatment, 
as much as eating all them cakes over the years and living a less than healthy lifestyle sometimes will have been a contributing factor. Nobody would look at me any differently. Everyone would be like, you need to get the help, you need to go to the hospital. So we just need to treat mental health the same. Yeah, I think that's right. And the last thing I picked up from it is I think if you're looking, again, if you're trying to get into this area where you could be working austere environments, you could be in high intensity lo locations, just double check that the team you're going with is a really functional team. Um, because you're going to have to work with that team. Uh, and if it's supportive, then you're going to, you've got a higher chance of being successful at your job. If you feel the culture of that team isn't right, and you maybe have the own gut feeling on that thing, then you probably want to step away from it. I think yeah, that's a I mean, big thing, isn't it? Stepping away is a big one, Colin, because um, there might be a need for that team, regardless how functional it is. You know, I can only imagine there's many, many teams deploying to Turkey at the moment um, mm -hmm. with the huge death tolls. I mean, the, it's crazy mm -hmm. what I've saw oh, on the news. Yeah. Unbelievable death tolls, unbelievable trauma, unbelievable the, the the mental health, whether the legacy as well as the physical legacy, that'll be huge. But those teams are deploying into that environment. And, you know, the, I, I've seen some talks on people deployed to like earthquake zones and stuff like that. And there's a lot of frustration because people can't get from A to B. It's, mm -hmm. There's a lot of political stuff involved and stuff like that. And that festers into manifestation of you won't let me help. Um, but I, the, what I would say, I'd go a bit further. I don't think if it doesn't seem that you don't get the right feeling, don't do it. I would say try and influence it. Okay. and try and influence it in a positive way i.e you know address the elephant in the room sometimes and there's very few people out there who i believe that with negotiation conversation can't be you know brought round to to a better way of thinking you know you know we're from a military environment mate we're all mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of alphas there's a lot of red characters if we were to get psychoanalyzing people who want to drive forward the five percenters and, and stuff like that there's a lot of them in military environments and you put a lot of them in the same room because uh, i know because i'm one of them um <laughs> yeah you know it, it it can be a bit chaotic but you have to learn you have to learn to adjust and change your attitude i remember what i was like 20 years ago as a leader compared to what i might like mm. now and i would be embarrassed at myself 20 years ago as a leader compared to where i've developed to now but that's experience that's because people give me feedback honestly which was hard to swallow sometimes mm. and therefore i believe again it goes back to this openness and addressing it and improving if things are not right you've just got to you've just got to be open about it and you've got to say the hard things because as much as it can be hard at the time my experiences genuinely end up we're a better team at the end of it yeah, that, that I think you've absolutely nailed it. And I'm going to agree with you as well. I look myself um, 25, 30 years ago as, as a young corporal. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I was an idiot as a corporal. Yeah. <laughs> you can keep that in the edit. Yeah, I would like to. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, I've, I've, I don't know, maybe some people will disagree, but hopefully I've rounded a little bit. But I agree with experience comes, comes learning, doesn't it? No, that's fantastic. Look, Andy, this has been absolutely... Um, a wonderful conversation uh, today. I've, I've learned a huge amount from it and I'm sure our listeners have got a massive amount about from it as well. So look, thank you so much for your, your, your time today. Um, if anybody would like to ask any questions on the subjects we've talked about tonight, um, we'll obviously put the, the podcast onto the LinkedIn page, which is TS, TSG Associates. But, you know, we'll also put the links up um, and you talked about the Merck Club as well. So you, you can see what, what's going on there. Uh, but obviously any questions, please, please contact us either maybe through the website or the LinkedIn page or the various social media sites. And um, we'll be back soon again uh, with another, hopefully, well, another unique subject and another unique colleague. So thank you for everybody for listening. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, 
please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.